Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we do impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And that is the word of our Lord. I want to begin with just a little bit of housekeeping um, by way of a quick introduction, help recover sort of the literary context of where we are in the uh, book of Corinthians. Actually, there's some slides. There should probably be some slides that you could pop up. Thank you. Um, so I want, to ask, I want us to really sort of ask ourselves three questions first. I want us to ask, why is Paul writing to, to the Corinthians to begin with? And what is Paul doing in the text? Now, that second question might sound a bit odd. I'll explain that shortly. And then finally, we want to ask at the end of the day, in our specific passage, what's the chief point that Paul's trying to make? Now, in chapter 5, verse 9, Paul references an earlier letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth. So we know that this letter that we have preserved as 1 Corinthians is at least Paul's second correspondence with the church at Corinth. The circumstances that prompted Paul to write our present letter is evident in the letter's structure. In the first verse of chapter 7, Paul transitions the flow of his letter with the words, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So from this point, through nearly the end of the letter, Paul systematically addresses a series of topics in response to questions or concerns that the Corinthian church evidently raised in an earlier letter that they wrote to Paul. However, the first six chapters are preoccupied with Paul's response to at least two negative reports that reached the apostles' attention. And the first report came from Chloe's people, as we heard in 1 verse 11, informing Paul of Corinth's quarreling and divisiveness. Paul acknowledgement, Paul's acknowledgement of this report and his admonishment of the Corinthians in response to this is the context of the first four chapters, chapters one through four. And the second report informed Paul of the Corinthians' shameless sexual immorality. And so chapters five and six is Paul's rebuke to this issue. And so Paul's letter to the Corinth was occasioned by Paul's need to both admonish the church at Corinth and to clarify certain issues of confusion. Chapters 1 through 6 is Paul's admonishment to the church at Corinth in response to two negative reports 
that came to the apostles' attention. And chapters 7 through 16 is Paul's clarification and instruction to the church in response to questions the Corinthians raised with Paul in an earlier letter. So that's why Paul's writing. That's the occasion of his writing. Now, what's Paul actually doing in our text? And what I really mean by that is, what is Paul seeking to achieve with his words? What response is he seeking to bring about among the Corinthian readers? Well, as we already mentioned, in chapters 1 through 4, Paul is admonishing the Corinthians for their quarreling and divisiveness, 1, 10, and 11, or what he refers to later in his admonishment as their jealousy and strife, 3, 3. So we know that Paul's objective is to admonish the Corinthians because he actually plainly says so later in his letter. In verse 14 of chapter 4, Paul writes, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now, though Paul says that his objective is not to shame the Corinthians, he comes very, very close to doing so as these chapters contain some of Paul's most sarcastic language in all of the New Testament. Now, I also want to bring to your attention the atmosphere of these first four chapters. And what I mean by that is the general mood or tone of Paul's writing. But the only reasonable way to describe this is to say that Paul is worked up. Paul's worked up. He's upset with the Corinthians over their hard-hearted foolishness and their slavish worldliness. His charge against the Corinthians is very similar to the charge that the author of Hebrews brought against his readers. Listen to Paul's words at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh. Now listen to the similarities we hear from the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need, you need someone to teach you again the basic oracles, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish between good and evil. And so Paul is spelling out for the Corinthians what they should have already come to understand about the gospel he preached to them, and whose implications they should have already been applying to their lives. The gist of Paul's argument that begins in 2 verse 6 and continues through the end of the chapter, through the end of chapter 2, is that they failed to cherish the wisdom of the cross. And they failed to cherish it because they failed to recognize the supremacy of God's wisdom in the cross. As a result, they cherished the wisdom of the world more than they cherished Christ. So Paul is essentially arguing He's essentially saying, this is where your head and heart should be. But in 3, 1 through 4, Paul is going to pierce their pride and explain that tragically, this is where you are. 
in 3.1, Paul basically says, and I mean absolutely no disrespect, that they are spiritually retarded. They are sickly believers, unnaturally underdeveloped, and they simply aren't equipped for Paul to relate to them as the mature that he alludes to in 2.6. And so, in 2.6-13, today's passage, Paul is revealing to them what they've refused to acknowledge on their own so that they would feel the full weight of his admonishment in 3, 1 through 4, and the rest of his rebuke through the end of chapter 4. So this is what Paul's doing in the text. He's preparing the Corinthians to be admonished. What response does Paul want to bring about? Well, he wants them to feel the full weight of that admonishment, that imminent, that imminent admonishment in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And as a result, he wants them to see their sin with the same vividness that Paul sees it. So that's what Paul is doing in the text. And what's, at the end of the day, the chief point of this very complex line of reasoning that we read through? Well, he says a lot in these eight verses. But his essential point of the passage is this. The cross of Christ is spiritual wisdom revealed by the Holy Spirit. Well, that sounds pretty obvious to our ears, and we'll unpack the depths of that pretty soon. But this point, the point of our passage today, serves the larger point of Paul's argument that the Corinthians cherished the wisdom of the world more than they cherished the wisdom of God. And so today's text is structured around three primary points. The nature of spiritual wisdom in verses 6 through 9, the means of spiritual wisdom in verses 10 through 12, and the source of spiritual wisdom in verse 13. And then by way of our final point, we'll consider what all this means to us. What is God's expectation for us today in response to what we're about to to hear and understand? So let's begin looking at the nature of spiritual wisdom Verses 2, 6 through 9, and we'll look at our first sub-point. Spiritual wisdom is not worldly wisdom. Verse 6. What's the first word in your text? It's the word yet. Now, when studying discourse genre, which is what our text is today, it's important to pay attention to coordinating conjunctions. Coordinating conjunctions, of which yet is one of them. And if you want a quick mnemonic to remember your coordinating conjunctions. There's seven of them in English. And you can remember them by the acronym FANBOYS. F-A-N-B-O-Y-S. For, and, nor, but, or, yet, so. Those are the seven coordinating conjunctions. And that's what the author, that's what writers use to assemble and navigate through their argument. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in our text. Paul says yet. So that's a big flag to us that Paul's about to present a caveat to his prior point. So it's obvious that we're sort of entering Paul's argument midstream. We're not crossing the street at the crosswalk, right? We're pulling out in the middle of the street just looking for room in the traffic to move out. We're sort of interrupting Paul's train of thought the same way, right? We're we're stumbling into a stream of thought where he's going to make reference to something he's already said that we haven't read this morning. Okay, that's what he means by the word yet. And specifically, he's about to present what might sound like a caveat 
to what he just said. Something unexpected, something that at first glance might sound like it contradicts what he just said. You see, throughout Paul's admonishment, he exposes worldly wisdom as the object of God's contempt. He does that very vividly in 119, and he'll do it again in 319. And God works to shame man's high opinion of himself. And one day, God will utterly destroy man's wisdom, proving its ultimate foolishness and irrelevance. Now, at this point, I want to pull over a little bit and suggest that I think it's best not to think of worldly wisdom as all that can be known in the world, but rather what the heart of a person believes about the way the world should work, about the way the world works, which gives rise to a to deep-seated values that then drives the way a person lives and how a person relates to the world around them. I think that's a good operating definition of worldly wisdom. So I don't think that mathematics, botany, or municipal water supply management are the kinds of things Paul had in mind when he was referring to worldly wisdom. On the other hand, the persuasion that your body is your own to do with what you wish or that self-expression is the supreme ethic, or that my significance is rooted in my career objectives and my financial status, those are examples of worldly wisdom, right? Those are deep-seated values that, that betray the way I think the world works, and they drive how I relate to the world around me, how I make decisions about my life. That's worldly wisdom. The Corinthians were overwhelmed with earthly pride, and they made much of worldly thought. And in 2, 1 through 5, Paul emphasizes that while he was present among the Corinthians, he took great pains to ensure that he didn't package his message in anything that even remotely resembled the worldly wisdom that entangled the Corinthians. He didn't want to provide the Corinthians with any kind of handle that would invite them to cling to his message for anything other than than the true substance of what his message said. Okay? Having just shredded the worth of earthly wisdom, Paul now introduces the notion that there is indeed a form of wisdom that Paul and his fellow under-shepherds preach and that this wisdom is in fact recognized by those who are spiritually mature. So that's the significance of the world yet. We're, we're entering Paul's argument midstream. He just got done decimating the value of worldly wisdom. Right? He says, oh, but on the other hand, we actually do impart wisdom you know, among the mature. So that's, that's what's going on there. Now, in verse 6, Paul stresses the absolute otherness of the wisdom he preaches. It's not a wisdom of this world, or of the rulers of this world whose irrelevance and insignificance Paul emphasizes by reminding his readers of the temporary nature of their presence. Interestingly, James draws out the same distinction between earthly and heavenly wisdom. In fact, he even does so in a context of behavior that's almost identical to the sin of strife and jealousy that consumed the Corinthians. Listen to James' words. He writes in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, sounds very Corinthian-like, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, 
but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So, having explained what the wisdom of his message is not, Paul goes on to say much about the wisdom of what the wisdom of his message is. And that brings us to our second subpoint. Spiritual wisdom is secret. Verses 7 through 9. Paul describes the wisdom of God as secret and hidden. Those are the word selections if you're reading the ESV. If you happen to be reading the NASB, the underlying Greek translated as secret by the ESV is translated with the prepositional phrase in a mystery if you're reading the NAS. Paul then takes the rest of verse 7 as well as verses 8 through 9 to provide further insight into what he means by these descriptions. So first, let's consider the idea of God's wisdom being a secret or a mystery. The underlying Greek word is the word mysterion, which of course is where our English word mystery comes from. And interestingly, the Greek word for secret, sagao, is actually not contained within our present passage. However, the overall semantic range of the word musterion, within that semantic range, there is a nuanced meaning that refers to the idea not just of a mystery, but a secret mystery. So no doubt that's what the ESV translators are emphasizing in their translation of the phrase to secret and hidden. Another passage of Paul's that describes the gospel as a secret mystery is located in Romans 16. In fact, the passage is Paul's closing benediction to the book of Romans. And so as such, it's Paul's final commentary on everything he said within his greatest theological work. And in this passage, Paul employs both mysterion, mystery, and sagao, secret, to describe God's revelation of the cross. Listen carefully to what Paul writes. He says in chapter 16, verses 25 through 27, he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So what are we to make of this idea that the wisdom of God, that is a proper understanding of the cross of Christ, is a secret mystery? Well, answer, Paul is emphasizing God's sovereign custody of divine wisdom. And by custody, I mean the protective care or guardianship of something. God is protective. He's guarding something. You see, the mystery of the cross is entirely God's work. And thus, it is his and his alone to reveal when, how, and to whom he chooses. Have you ever paused to realize that the creator is not under any obligation to the creature. God does not owe revelation to you and I. Do do you understand that? God doesn't owe you any disclosure of himself. You and I do not have a fundamental right 
to hear and understand the message of the cross. And if we do possess such an understanding, we do so solely on the basis of God's pleasure. And Paul wants us to know that throughout a significant portion of redemptive history, God did not disclose the full nature of his saving work in Jesus Christ until he saw fit to do so. Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it, is, as it has now been re- revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, Paul's use of the word hidden is similar to the idea of secret, but it reveals an additional distinction. The underlying Greek word is the word apokrypto, and it means to conceal from. And the root word, crypto, is where we get our English word cryptic. Now, whereas Paul's use of the word mysterion emphasized God's sovereign custody of divine wisdom, Paul's use of apokrypto emphasizes divine wisdom's inaccessibility. Inaccessibility. You see, unlike God's testimony of his reality and presence communicated to all of humanity through the creation and through the mechanism of human conscience, God has seen fit to render the cross of Christ as something that's beyond the reach of human understanding and human discernment, except in the case of those whom God chooses to reveal it to. Once again, Paul's letter to the Corinthians is not the only place where Paul emphasizes the hidden nature of the gospel. Listen to what Paul wrote later in Ephesians, chapter 3, 9 through 10. He wrote, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Or his letter to the Colossians in 1, verses 25 through 27. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. A little illustration might help us grasp this. In 1884, an English schoolmaster by the name of Edwin Abbott wrote a short book entitled Flatland, A Romance of Many Dimensions. Now, the book is a satire on Victorian culture in England. But what made the book endure over the last hundred, with, over the last century plus is its imaginative plot that takes place in a two-dimensional world whose inhabitants are geometric figures. So the characters in Flatland are circles and squares and lines and triangles and whatnot and other polygons. And then one day their two-dimensional world was visited by a three-dimensional sphere. But the inhabitants are completely incapable of comprehending the sphere. Why? Because his three-dimensionality can't be grasped by their two-dimensional reality. Right? They're trapped in a reality consisting of only two dimensions. And so they have no way of grasping the third dimension. 
and they're powerless to properly recognize and understand the visiting sphere. Now, this isn't a perfect analogy of divine wisdom's inaccessibility, but it is close. It is close. Just as a true knowledge of their three-dimensional visitor was completely inaccessible to Abbott's two-dimensional flatlanders, the wisdom of God is inaccessible to human reason. And as a proof point of the secret and hidden nature of God's wisdom, Paul cites the murderous response of the world's rulers to the presence and power of God who walked among them, Jesus Christ. Paul writes in verses 8 and 9, he said, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul's point is simple. If the rulers of this age truly discerned the wisdom of God, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord. But they didn't. And so they did crucify him. But even the murderous action of those who crucified the Lord was not outside the sovereign decree of God. Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah 64.4 to be exact as a testimony of man's complete inability to know what God has hidden and made secret and the great privilege to those, the great privilege of those to whom God has indeed revealed his saving purposes. Having said all that, there are some necessary cautions we need to be aware of. I want to mention that at this point, there's a very real danger of reading something into the text that is not there. Paul's description of godly wisdom as a secret and hidden wisdom or a hidden wisdom that speaks in a mystery, as the NASB reads, this has been confused by some with mysticism, Gnosticism, and even cultism. But I want to tell you that Paul isn't talking about any of these things. So let me briefly describe each of these three terms. It's a bit difficult to define mysticism because of its many forms and varieties. But basically, mysticism is an approach to Christianity that emphasizes an otherworldly union between God and the human soul. So far, so good. That's true. But the problem is, is that the emphasis is on some sort of personal encounter with God or other subjective experience rather than or to the exclusion of or to the de-emphasis of a cognitive engagement with God's word. Okay? That's really what mysticism is, is about. And it's most prevalent among Eastern Orthodox traditions and some forms of Roman Catholicism. Gnosticism is a heresy that emerged in the second century. And among many other things, Gnosticism taught that the salvation, that salvation is the restoration of the soul's divine nature through personal enlightenment or awakening, rather than the restoration of body, soul, and spirit through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, cultism refers to a heretical sect or religious movement whose founder claims to have some sort of privileged illumination or revelation, not 
accessible to Orthodox faith and who typically relies upon authoritarian and charismatic mechanisms to sustain their, their movement. Now, Gnosticism and cultism, those are indeed patent heresies. But since I don't think that these are leading problems in our body, I'm not going to take any further time to discuss these things. But I do want to make a few observations about mysticism. As I've alluded to a few moments ago, mysticism isn't so much a single thing as it is a spectrum of things that vary by degree. Okay? So at best, at its most benign, mysticism confuses and misplaces the role of the word and, of course, that leads to other numerous errors and practical weaknesses. Okay, that's at best. At worst, it is a patent heresy. It is a patent heresy. And so you've got everything in between. Okay? But in all cases, in both cases, in both extremes, mysticism is ultimately a prescription on how to practice the Christian faith. Okay? Now, that's important because what I want to point out is that Paul is by no means advocating a form of Christian mysticism with his language. Okay? Why? Well, for this simple reason. Paul's use of the descriptors, secret and hidden, they are describing God's actions in response to worldly wisdom whose foundation is the pride of man. Okay? Paul isn't instructing his readers on how to practice the Christian faith. And this is especially apparent when we consider Paul's other parallel statements that we read a few moments ago. So to use Paul's words to advocate mysticism is to ignore the context of Paul's argument. And we'll also see further evidence that Paul is not advocating a form of Christian mysticism later in our passage. And that, in fact, will be the tipping point. So if the explanation I just gave you isn't entirely satisfying, please wait, because in a few moments I think we'll hit a compelling fact that decimates any possibility Paul is advocating a mystical approach, approach to the Christian faith. So let's pause for a second and sort of summarize where we've been. So we just covered our, our first key point, the nature of spiritual wisdom. And we made a couple of key observations, right? We noticed that Paul emphasizes that what he preaches is the wisdom of God, which is completely different from and in opposition to worldly wisdom. And Paul clarifies that the wisdom of God is, in fact, the cross of Christ. Paul emphasizes two characteristics of divine wisdom. First, Paul describes the wisdom of God as a secret or mystery, emphasizing God's sovereign custody of divine wisdom. Remember, God doesn't owe revelation to anyone. The mystery of the cross is God's work, and it is his to reveal when how and to whom he chooses. Secondly, Paul describes the wisdom of God as hidden, emphasizing divine wisdom's complete inaccessibility to man's reasoning. God has seen fit to render the cross of Christ as something that's beyond the reach and understanding of human discernment, except in the case of those whom God chooses to reveal it. And so this brings us to verses 10 through 12, what I've described as the means of spiritual wisdom. And the first subpoint I'd like to make is that God reveals spiritual wisdom through his spirit. You see, Paul adds a second emphasis to his argument. Look again at this diagram. From a textual perspective, 
Paul's reasoning in verses 7 through 9 seems to be structured around the adjectives secret and hidden. But now turn the page over and look at verses 10 through 12. And you see that his reasoning seems to be structured around the verbs revealed and received. Paul writes, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand the things freely given to us from God. So in this section, Paul explains the means of divine wisdom. That is, how divine wisdom is, if you will, transported from the depths of God to the heart and mind of man. And while addressing this aspect of things, Paul continues to deepen our understanding and grasp of the nature of divine wisdom. So he hasn't stopped talking about, he hasn't stopped talking about the nature of divine wisdom. He's just now adding further insight into the means of divine wisdom and while doing that, deepening our grasp of its nature. Okay? So, if the wisdom of God is secret and hidden, then how has God chosen to make the wisdom of God unhidden? Or if I could invent the word, unsecreted. How has God chosen to communicate his purposes and actions to his covenant people? Well, in one sense, the answer is simple. It's staring at us right in the face. In verse 10, Paul says plainly, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. However, Paul wants his readers to understand that the wisdom of God isn't something that Paul and his fellow under-shepherds figured out on their own. It isn't something that they could deduce or discover through their own means. Spiritual wisdom originates from the depths of God. This is our second sub-point. And it's through Paul's next statement that we stumble into the most mysterious and profound portion of today's message. It's profound because in explaining that his possession of divine wisdom is something that only the Spirit of God can accomplish, Paul is also giving further insight into the inexplicable nature of divine wisdom. Paul explains that the Spirit searches the depths of God. He then argues from the lesser to the greater, explaining that just as the Spirit of a person is the only one competent to truly know a person's thoughts, only the Spirit of God is competent to know the thoughts of God. And so what we just discovered is that the wisdom of God that is, the revealed purposes and actions of God that culminate in the cross of Christ is nothing less than the very thoughts of God, thoughts originating from the very depths of God. It's hard to exaggerate or overemphasize the profound nature of what we're dealing with here. When the power of the cross is made known to us, when the power of the cross is made known to you and I, we're not dealing with just a bunch of inert facts about God. We're not dealing with a mere historical account of God's past actions, but rather we're encountering God himself, the thoughts of God from the depths of God. Just like an eclipse struck awe and fear 
into the mind and heart of ancient man, when we come to truly grasp both the meaning and the power of the cross, we're overwhelmed by the inner depths of a sovereign, unmeasurable, limitless God whose worth and supremacy eclipses everything else. In verse 12, Paul argues that his competence to understand that which God has chosen to freely reveal proceeds entirely from the Spirit of God that's been made to dwell in Paul. Right? Paul received the Spirit that he might understand. That's our third subpoint in this second section. Okay? Paul wants his readers to know that he and his fellow under-shepherds are stewards of a divine mystery that he is otherwise senseless to discern and grasp except through the revealing work of God's Spirit. So an illustration might be helpful to drive home this point. There's a chain of volcanic islands off the northwestern coast of Africa, and these islands are owned by Spain. They're referred to as the Spanish Canary Islands. And one of the smaller main islands is named La Gomera. About 22,000 people live on this isolated, mountainous land. The indigenous inhabitants of La Gomera speak a language called Silbo. Now, Silbo is one of the most unique languages spoken today. What makes Silbo so unlike other contemporary languages? Well, Silbo is what linguists call a whistle language. Now, this is hard to imagine, but vowels and consonants are distinguished by dips and rises in the whistled melody. And when they are strung together, they create words and sentences. So here's the thing. Your mind isn't wired to recognize whistle pitches as words. If you listen to Silbo, you would certainly hear sounds, but you would be powerless to grasp meaning. In fact, you wouldn't even know that you don't know because you wouldn't even be aware that meaning is being conveyed. So by now, I think the parallel is obvious, right? You and I can hear facts about the gospel, but unless we have received the spirit of God to understand that which is otherwise senseless to us, communication between the creator and the creature has not occurred, let alone communication that delivers us from eternal death to eternal life. So again, let's summarize. Paul's emphasis shifts to the means by which divine wisdom is conveyed from God to man. And in so doing, Paul brings us face to face with the profound wonder of God's sovereign disclosure. We learn that the wisdom of God is nothing less than the very thoughts of God that originate from the very depths of God. Paul tells us that because this is so, only the Spirit of God is competent to transport such things from the depths of the Creator to the heart and mind of the creature. Paul argues that he and his fellow under-shepherds received the Holy Spirit, and thus, because of the Spirit's revealing work, Paul and others are competent to understand that which they would otherwise be senseless to grasp. That's Paul's chief point there. 
And now we move to our third key point, the source of spiritual wisdom. Verse 13. And I want to make much here about Paul's choice of terms. And as you will soon see, Paul's reliance upon Scripture. This is perhaps one of the, probably the most important point of everything we've said thus far, and you'll see why in a moment. Earlier I stressed that in describing divine wisdom as something that is secret and hidden, it was not Paul's intent to characterize saving faith as some type of mystical experience. Right, but let's face it. Let's face it. If you went back and read from verse 10 through 12, it might appear as if those advocating Christian mysticism might have something to stand on because it does sound a little mystical. Except here's the thing. Paul's train of thought on this matter doesn't end at the end of verse 12. Paul says something very important in verse 13 that makes all the difference in the world. Paul says something in verse 13 that shifts everything Paul just said from the realm of the abstract and the subjective and it plants it firmly in something that is objective and concrete. In fact, this is so important that if we miss this, then we miss, uh, if we miss what Paul clarifies in the beginning of verse 13, then we're, we're going to miss his entire argument. Listen to what he says in verse 13. He says, And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul says, we impart this in words. And what underlying Greek term do you think is being translated as words? Well, if you said logos, you'd be absolutely correct. Here again, it's difficult to exaggerate the significance of Paul's choice of terms. Let me try to explain why. What is the vehicle on the basis of what Paul said? that God has chosen to give expression to the sovereign disclosure of God's otherwise hidden and inaccessible thoughts that originate from the very depths of God's being. What vehicle has God chosen to do that? It's the written words of Scripture. Well, how do we get there? In context, the term words refers to the Old Testament Scriptures. But because of Paul's apostolic witness, God inspired a portion of Paul's writings and the writings of the other apostles uh, as New Testament scripture. So in our case, verse 13, the word logos refers both to Old Testament and New Testament scriptures. Now, why am I saying this? How do I know that? How do we know that? Why? Well, every place we look, Paul relied upon Old Testament scriptures to explain the historic facts of the cross and thus bring out into light the mystery that was otherwise hidden. It was the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, that Paul used to give expression to what is now being unhidden and unsecreted. Consider first Paul's ministry that founded the church in Corinth, the church he's writing to. He writes in Acts 18.5, or Luke writes in Acts 18.5, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was God. Admittedly, that's not the tipping point yet, but log that in your mind and bear with me. Look at Acts 17, verses 2 through 3, regarding Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, 
explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Or Paul's testimony to King Agrippa in Acts 26, verse 22 and 23. He says, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing, nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. There's your reference to scripture. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Or Paul's witness to the Jews in Rome. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And then remember Paul's benediction we read earlier at the end of Romans, Romans 16, 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept hidden for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. And of course, if time permitted, we could look also at Peter's witness, such as 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, verses 23 through 25. And there's just an abundance of other passages throughout Scripture. Paul explains that the wisdom of God that Paul preaches, the wisdom of God revealed to Paul by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the wisdom of God whose understanding was granted to Paul is also the inscripturated word of God. You see, the Spirit doesn't reveal the the thoughts and heart of God through mystical experience, but through the concrete, objective use of human language. And not just any language, but the divine testimony supernaturally preserved for us in the form of Holy Scripture. And so by bringing all that he said back to the Lagos, the word, Paul cuts off at the knees any propensity to take what he said and leave it in the abstract. So again, not only is the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the cross, it's the wisdom of the cross revealed in God's prophetic and apostolic word, the Bible. And so all that Paul said about the wisdom of God is also a proper understanding of the written word of God. So that's our tour through Paul's testimony here. And now we have to step back and we have to ask ourselves, so what? What's the implications of all of this? How do I responsibly take ownership for everything Paul just said? What's God's expectation of us this afternoon? Well, I want to relate this back to what Paul was doing in the text. Remember, Paul is equipping the Corinthians to feel the full weight of his imminent rebuke. He's spelling out for them what they should have already recognized and applied to their lives. In 3.1, Paul will explain that their fleshly behavior makes it evident that they are so grossly underdeveloped spiritually that Paul can't even relate to the Corinthians as those who truly understand what he just explained in our passage. And as we said earlier, the gist of Paul's argument in the larger scheme is that the Corinthians' jealousy and strife is the consequence of their failure to cherish the wisdom of the cross. And they failed to cherish the wisdom of the cross, because they failed to recognize the supremacy of God's wisdom in the cross. And so as a result, they cherished the wisdom of the world more than the wisdom of God. So what's that to us? How are we to take responsibility for all that Paul said in these last eight verses? I think the best way to answer this question 
is to first ask ourselves another question. What is God doing in the text? Right? I just explained to you twice what Paul is doing in the text. What's God, the divine author, doing in the text? And what response does God want to bring about through the force of his inspired words, given expression through the occasion and purpose of Paul's writing? Well, in chapter 2, verses 6 to 13, God is tearing down man's high opinion of himself by destroying any notion, any notion that spiritual truth is a matter of man's personal discovery. God is at work to elevate the believer's grasp of Scripture's profound nature, its divine origin, and its complete inaccessibility, inaccessibility apart from his gracious and sovereign mercy. If the power of the cross has indeed been made known to you through God's ordained preaching of the word, he wants you to gasp in awe at the wonder and depth of what you've been given. Again, the word of God is not an inert collection of facts about God, nor is it merely a summary of God's mighty acts throughout redemptive history, but rather when we engage God's word through the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, we encounter God himself. We encounter God himself. And he wants us to be so overwhelmed at the unspeakable privilege we possess as recipients of God's sovereign self-disclosure that the world and its values are increasingly insignificant and irrelevant as we abide in and treasure Christ more deeply. Again, another illustration. Imagine for a moment that you work for a large multinational corporation whose annual revenues were well in excess of $75 billion a year. Okay? And by the way, <clears throat> Intel's not $75 billion yet, so it rules that out. Right? This is a God, God think fresh. Imagine for a moment that you worked in a modest middle management role and then that one day you were tapped on the shoulder and asked to spend more than three months working one-on-one with the CEO and his executive staff. Now, in this new assignment, your entire understanding of the company changed. No longer constrained to your little tiny corner of the company, you witnessed firsthand the worldwide global strategies carefully designed to drive the corporation's vision of what they intended to achieve in the next three, five, even ten years. You gained insight into how every asset of the business was brought to bear to accomplish the corporation's audacious worldwide strategic vision. And then suddenly, you're struck by the fact that in the grand scheme of things, the company doesn't exist in order to propel your sense of significance. What's driving this company is something bigger than your own personal vision of success. Now, that's not a perfect analogy, but it does help us grasp what God wants to achieve in today's text. You see, he wants us to see the glory and wonder of his cosmic purposes in Jesus Christ, a purpose originating in the very depths of God, a purpose otherwise hidden and inaccessible to us, but in his mercy, that which God chose to reveal to us through his written word and a purpose God chose 
to graft us into through the redeeming work of his cross. God wants us to be stunned, awed, astonished, left speechless at the idea that our holy creator chose to disclose his thoughts, his heart, and his saving initiative to his most unworthy creatures. So once again, how do I take responsibility for this? I'd venture to say that few, if any of you, disagree with anything you've heard this afternoon. We gladly confess these things. We even sing about them. But then why does my life seem to be such a dull reflection of these things? How is it that in spite of all these things, the spirit of the world still entangles me? And I had the privilege of spending the whole week thinking about this stuff. Last two weeks, actually. How do we weave the inexplicable nature of God's word and the revealed mystery of the cross into the practical affairs of daily living? I have no doubt that some, maybe all of you might be thinking, sure, this preaches well, but it just doesn't, it's just not terribly practical. I mean, at the end of the day, I have to make a living. Or you don't understand the oppressive complexities of my work and family life. Or it's all I can do to get up each day and meet the emotional or physical demands of the next 12 hours or both. And every waking thought and concern in my life is dominated by sickness or other health issues. Well, despite the fact that life is hard and life is difficult and our days are often filled with more demand than supply, I stand here convinced. I stand here convinced that there's nothing more practical than to think much and to think rightly about who God is what he has done, and what he is doing. What God wants us to understand is that the more we stand in awe of the profound privilege we've been granted as recipients of God's revealed wisdom in the cross, the more we will cherish the wisdom of the cross. And to cherish the wisdom of the cross is the same thing as cherishing Christ himself. And when we truly begin to cherish Christ, I mean when we truly begin to cherish Christ, then the gospel is no longer a means to an end. It's no longer a pathway to a better life. Rather, we joyfully embrace our growing insignificance and irrelevance in the eyes of the world as Christ becomes our example, our satisfaction, our treasure, We value God's purposes in Christ so much so that we are willing to endure anything and sacrifice everything in order to follow Jesus and live as those truly persuaded of his infinite worth. Let me close by leaving you yet with one more illustration, one more thought. I wonder how we would respond to this afternoon's text if we were confronted by our text while we were being forced to watch our own burial. Now, I realize this might sound a bit macabre, so please bear with me. And I'm thinking of that scene in Charles Dickens' book, A Christmas Carol, 
where the ghost of Christmas future forces Scrooge to gaze upon his own grave. Well, I think Dickens was on to something. I wonder how we would relate to these truths if all the allures and all the distractions of this world and the pursuits of self were stripped away, were completely stripped away from us. If we were forced to watch them pull the sheet over our lifeless form and watch them lower our casket into the ground, knowing at that moment that the world's concerns are no longer our concerns. But from that time forward, all that we have is what we have in Christ. If we could capture and retain the clarity of the thinking that would attend that moment, I think we might be more inclined to stand in awe and gasp at what God has revealed in Christ and to cherish these things in such a way that our hearts burst apart with zeal to trust and treasure Jesus Christ in reckless abandon to everything else. And what can be more practical than that? What can be more practical than that? Let me close in prayer. Lord, we've heard much this afternoon and we, we recognize, at least confessionally, the wonder and the awe and the depth of your sovereign work on the cross. And yet, Lord, our lives are dull reflections of our sense of your worth and the great privilege you've given us. At least it's not as consistent as we would like it to be. And so, Lord, we can't manufacture this type of response. We can't hit some sort of switch and suddenly be on. We are beholden to you and your sovereign kindness to us to inflame our hearts to see what we otherwise could not see, to hear you and see the wonder of these things and to let these things soak into the very marrow of our bones so that we would indeed cherish you over and against the world that we so easily cherish. Make us see the, the, the rusty ineffectiveness and emptiness of all the world promises, and may we see the height of your glory. Because, Lord, if you don't show us your glory, we can't and won't cherish you. Lord, we have no hope apart from your mercy and grace in our lives. So, Lord, please move. Please move for the glory of your name to raise up this people of grace and truth, Lord, to be a people whose hope is solely in you. A people, Lord, who are freely divesting themselves of the stickiness around us, the stickiness of the world, and sojourning towards the city of God. It's in your name, Lord, that we pray. Amen.